Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Story podcast. My name's Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan. And there's no long, meandering, waffling of an intro this week. We're going straight in, no kissing, because our regular contributor. A regular um, waffler. Go easy, go easy, please. I mean that in the, the best possible way. He's our man in Stockholm. He's your man in Stockholm. He's the everyman in Stockholm. He's Philip O'Connor. Philip, thank you very, very much for coming back on to What's the Story podcast. Look, look, let's be fair though. I forced me way into this one, lads. Let's go. Look, we have done this in yeah. ages. Go on, Daddy. Set up the Zoom. Set up the Zoom. There's loads of things we can talk about. And what do you do? You spend the last 15 or 20 minutes telling me about launching a career on OnlyFans. I can't believe it, Dan. I can't believe <laughs> gotta, it. Gotta pay them bills, man. Gotta pay That's them bills. Onlydan.com forward slash Dan Joe Murray. It's all there. <laughs> and only he's all hang out. It's exactly. brilliant altogether. Look, what I'm a great only, idea. I'm only using the podcast now to find new uh, OnlyFans. Haven't you? people to contribute uh, to collaborate with to be honest with you that's that's the thing now wasn't it that's and look at and this is the know. thing that and nobody's judging you because this is the age we live in today you do you i believe is the the phrase that the, the young people use uh, the most i'm yeah exactly i'm fully supportive of all your life choices dan as you well know i, I should inform people to be fair it's not me and the nipper at and like that i i've basically put my name down as danielle i've shaved my feet and i'm selling pee pics um <laughs> so, you know that's it it's look it's making bread man it's making bread there's Phil. so much to unpack here and we're only about 90 seconds in. <laughs> Jesus. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Phil, Phil, as you said there, you, in quotes, forced your way on this week. Why did you Why did you want to come on to, to talk to me and Danny? It's very simple, lads. Whenever I think of things that are happening in Ireland to Irish people that the rest of the world sees about Ireland, I always think of Danny and his unshaven feet and you, Meryl. And I think that... This has always been a great pl- platform. If I'm going to be serious for 15 seconds of this podcast, this has always been a great platform for conversations about who we are and where, not where we've come from or anything, but where we want to go as people. And when I saw what happened last week in Dublin, I thought to myself, this is made up for a conversation about the riots that happened in Dublin, what's happening in Dublin, where those things come from. Because what I missed as well was, and I was only looking at it this evening, you know, in prime time, I've gone back over all the CCTV footage and everything else like that. But it struck me that there was very little understanding of what drove what happened, right? We all know that Lewis got burned. We know that Garda Cards got burned and a bus got burned and there was rioting until half 11 and that kind of thing. But it's the why and the how, I think, that interests me because these are things that we'll all have to be aware of now in our everyday lives because what happened in Dublin city centre is not an accident. It was not in any way unexpected. And it's happening to people we know. They're being exposed to this kind of thinking and they're being exploited in many cases for something that they maybe don't understand or they don't even realise in some cases that are happening. And because of the fact that I've been writing about these things and studying them like for the last 20 odd years or so, I thought that I might have some things that we can all talk about that might help other people who might find themselves on that slippery slope of anger and looking for some to express that anger that gives them a sense of satisfaction which essentially is what last Thursday was all about absolutely and Phil like you I said you've been studying this for 20 years we've known you eight nine years um in the nine years I've known you I've I've heard you on Ireland's airwaves talking about it um I've seen you you wrote a letter to director general RT at the time D Forbes um, request some time to explain that this will happen in Ireland. Um, 
You were critical in January, February this year of an article in the Examiner, Irish Examiner by Mick Clifford, who was basically saying he was basically downplaying the whole far right um incident. And like I like people now, people now that are into their trends and they're into their buzzwords, they think far right is is this latest buzzword. It's not. Far right has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um so you know when where where do we go here, okay? Because we have Mick Clifford now, for example. I'm not picking on Mick, but I am in a certain way for 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 context. His article earlier in the year I read and I was left infuriated reading it because it wasn't representative of what I was seeing or what I was watching. Um and then we had then we had in Sandwich Street the the refugee camp put on fire. Me and Danny seen in our home village in July in Ballybrack. Um there was protests. There's been protests in Finglas, Ballymun, all these working class areas East that Wall. when I was growing up, East Wall as well, when I was growing up, was very welcoming. Was very, you know, what 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 in in the established media, like Mick Clifford and other places, Mick's not on his own, by the way. News talk as well have downplayed this. Why can why I, aren't sorry. why aren't can can I just Sorry? interrupt? Can I just interrupt for one second? Because you've, yeah, you've yeah. said you, you you've said that radio station, they, in my opinion, I want to be careful about how I put this. They have significantly fanned the flames through presenters in prime time slot prime time slots on that particular radio station. And Absolutely. I, I think they have a responsibility that they've neglected in a big way, particularly the now broadcaster, former doctor and her colleague in the mornings. And I think Absolutely. that's... And go on. I agree. And the point I was getting at there in terms of national media, national airways, prime time slots, as you covered, I, I guess, Phil, all of this makes me quite anxious. All this um, rhetoric unvetted males um, you know dog dog whistling it makes me quite anxious it makes me worried um, it, it's it's the it's the voice of these people in with these uh, with these uh, kind of opportunities in terms of radio in terms of a, a, a column every week how can we turn it around from a media standpoint and can we turn it around that's a tremendous question, Graham, and I'm not going to answer it for about another hour, right? Because we've so many things to unpack <laughs> in what you said there, right? Let's go back to Mick Clifford, a great journalist, great writer, somebody I have an awful lot of time for. Got it completely wrong when he wrote about the far right and joked about, you know, oh, you know, this crowd of Gombeans getting together with the other crowd of Gombeans and that kind of thing. There's a tendency among established media, and it's one of those things, especially when you get to the level of respect that people have for a columnist like Mick Clifford, right? There's a tendency to downplay things that you either don't understand or don't want to understand, right? The comfortable middle-class media, and I would include Mick in that, though, he's probably a working-class lad like ourselves, right? But when you get to that level, right, you actually don't want to touch this, right? It's so complicated, and it's a fucking sewer, right? You wouldn't believe the things I've been reading for the last 20 years, right? They would put like you know, they put grey hairs on Danny's OnlyFans and a shaving fees is all I can say, right? The <laughs> stuff that you end up digging into, the sort of um, 
conspiracy theories, the sort of hatred. And I mean, uh, there's a difference that we're going to make soon between anger and hatred as well, right? And Mick looked at that and went, there's only very few people involved in this. And he went, okay, so they're not a threat, right? The only thing you need to start a forest fire is a spark. And that's exactly what we saw in Dublin on Thursday, right? I feel like Cassandra standing there shouting that everything's about to go to shit for the last 10 or 15 years. And now I'm being proved right and it gives me no great satisfaction that that has happened, right? So you have Mick and then you have other people who are doing it for a sort of more or less a commercial reason, right? And there's two things. I remember talking to Tony Groves one time uh, over on the Tortoise Shack. Uh, support those lads on Patreon if you can, because that's pretty much their only source of income, right? Um, but yeah. I remember saying to him that this only, I'm just asking questions is something that you'll hear from a lot of political commentators and a lot of talking <laughs> heads on the radio. And I find that to be the greatest moral cowardice that exists, right? Because if I do that with the platform that I have, 23,000 people on Twitter, a couple of podcasts every week, and I start just asking questions, I'm not just asking questions at all. I'm dying dog whistling, right? So when I start to talk about trans people, when I start to talk about travellers, when I start to talk about Afro-Irish people, when I start to talk about Ukrainians and Daddy has his hand up, question for the audience. I just, I, I'm conscious some of the terminology we're going to use, some people may not be familiar with. So when you say dog whistling, Phil, can you just elaborate right. on that a little bit? So, so the, the reason dog whistling is an expression is because dogs can hear signals that the human ear can't, right? And what it means in a political context is I'll say something, right? And you would have seen a lot of that in the doll this week from the rural independents or whatever they call themselves. And what they will be doing is using terms like the one that Merrow used earlier on this conversation about unvetted males, right? And that doesn't say rapist, but that's what it means. And if you're listening... And if you're afraid, that's what you hear, right? So me and Merrow and Danny be sitting there thinking, oh, there's some bog trotter with a fucking cap on and the doll. And he's talking about unvetted males. Isn't he an idiot, right? But a person sitting maybe across the road from where Merrow's sitting there, from around the corner from you in Port Leash there, Dan, what they're hearing is there's a load of people coming into town to rape my children or to rape my daughter, right? And that's where things go wrong. And once you let these genies out of the bottle as a broadcaster, um, as a writer, as a columnist, you can't put them back in. And this is why you'll find people sort of trying to cover their tracks and backtrack and go, oh no, I never said those things or I never meant those things, right? But by that stage, it's absolutely far too late, right? We go back to um, one of the most horrible things I've ever had to do was to cover the aftermath of the attack on Utøya by Anders Bering Breivik, where he murdered 69 people in cold blood, most of them teenagers, who were gathered for a labour youth camp on the island of Utøya in uh, in Norway. He set off a bomb in the centre of town. I think that killed eight people. Then he drove out to the island. He got a ferry across with a bunch of weapons. And he spent a good hour, an hour and a half shooting kids, right? And I had to cover that. And what, my first task in the covering of that was to read a manifesto that he had written. He had copy-pasted a lot of it from the internet, but an awful lot of it was, you know, taken from a guy called Fjordman, who would be one of the sort of the thinkers and in inverted commas in this particular movement, right? And what had happened was that Breivik had been radicalized by people in these far-right circles, and he had created a whole sort of, uh, a whole catastrophe that he lived in. You know, about this whole thing of, oh, you know, we're being invaded by Muslims and we're all going to end up, you know, being Muslims and oh, they're here to rape our women and they don't see, they, they actually see it as a religious duty to do something. None of this is fucking true. But this guy was so caught up in it that he was doing, and some of that came then from the mainstream media, right? So 20 years ago, when I, or 24 years ago, I moved to Sweden and the things that were being said in, in, in media now could not have been said then, right? The Danish Prime Minister, Helle Thorne-Schmidt, in a recent election campaign, she said something along the lines of, when I see a, a person on the street, I want to see a Dane looking back at me. Now, what she meant was, she wants to see somebody who's assimilated, who's working, who's speaking Danish, who's not a burden on the welfare state. 
But what that came across uh, to, to you know the far right was she wants to see a white person. She wants these brown people gone out of town, right? And all of these things, whether intentional or not, they feed into the same thing, right? So if we back up the truck even further, what is the threat here and where is it coming from, right? There's always been a section of people who believe that races or nationalities should not mix, right? We tend to call it white supremacy in Eastern Europe, or sorry, in, 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 the Western, in Western Europe and in America. This is what we call it. We call it white supremacy because we simply believe that because of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and books and Pop Idol and Big Brother and everything else, we're simply better and cleverer than everybody else. That's not the case. We just had better weapons when we went around colonizing the world, right? And since then, since the demise of the British Empire, the empire which the sun never set, people have sort of rescinded or receded into this thing where they think that all of a sudden the people that we used to rule over are now a threat to us because they're coming to our doorstep. When I went to school in Dublin in the 1970s and 1980s, there were two black men in Dublin, lads. One was Paul McGraw, who played for St. Patrick's Athletic, a fine football club that my father supports. Unfortunately, never played for Bohemians, the only other soccer club of no in Dublin, of course. And the other was Phil Linnett, the bass player with Tin Lizzy. And I remember seeing Phil Linnett on Grafton Street with my mother as a child. And I like I, I remember the style of the man, the size of him, because he would have been much taller than me when I was a child. And I remember being absolutely blown away by this exotic creature from Crumlin or wherever he was from, right? But that was the first time I'd ever seen a black man. The first black man that my mother ever spoke to was a friend of mine, one of the first friends that I made here in Sweden. She'd never spoken to a black person before that. And I was 28 years old when I moved here, right? Ireland has changed an awful lot since then, you know? But this idea somehow now that all of a sudden because I, Ireland, which was an island nation, which nobody went to because, you know, we could barely feed ourselves, let alone anybody else. Now we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world, or so we're told. And people seek their way there. People come from Eastern Europe and they come from Romania and they come from Ukraine and they come from Asia and they come from Africa to make a fortune. And all of a sudden we struggle to deal with it. Right. And the same thing is true all over Europe. But what really fuels the whole thing, lads, is anger right? It's anger about the situation that has been created by the first hundred years of the state. And it's exactly the same anger in Ireland as it is that drove Breivik, as it is that we see in Sweden, as it is that drove January the 6th and Donald Trump's presidency, presidency and what we see in Putin's Russia, right? Because everything has been sold off, because we can't afford a place, a place to live, because we don't have the protection of a union in our place of work, because we don't know where we're going to end up when we retire, because because we're going to end up for 24 hours on a chair, 36 hours on a chair in an emergency unit, because, you know, when we get COVID or when something goes wrong with us, we're angry and we don't know where to, to, to point that anger. And the easiest thing to do is when the dog whistle comes from a certain radio station or from a columnist and says, see them brown people, see them fuckers are after coming into the country looking for refuge. They're all spoofers. And it's the easiest thing in the world then to divert that anger towards them rather than towards the people who have actually created this situation i think th there's a lot to unpack here and i think you know th this could be a 10-hour podcast and we'd still only scratch the surface there's and I, I fully agree what you're saying bro and i think part of the biggest problem that ireland has is that when we hold up a mirror to ourselves we don't see the reflection looking back or at least that cohort do you know it, it cannot cannot be lost on these people that they're living in a generation where 20 something year olds and 30 something year olds have left this country en masse to exactly. find a better life exactly. Canada, Australia 
in the 1980s, it was there, there is no generation from Ireland that has not sought a better life abroad. I, I emigrated and, during the reception for the year. You did, right? And, um, and, and lo- thousands did as well in that yeah. during 2008, 2009. So Absolutely. You're, like you're calling it 100%. Right. It's, so, it's, and it's, it's this, the lack of self-awareness that absolutely drives me mad. Yeah, and I, and I think this is the thing. There seems to be this willful ignorance because the white Irish man going abroad is going abroad to work. And yes, there's a difference between going abroad and trying to find work and going abroad because you are fleeing a literal fucking war zone. But then you get into conspiracy theory land about what that war is and what the truth of it is. And you get into men of military age and you get into unvetted males and all those dog whistles that Phil kindly elaborated on. Where that anger comes into it for me is, like you said, that hundred years of the state never had an alternative to the big party, so to speak. But when I look at politics in Ireland and I'm angry and I share in the anger in terms of, you know, thank God I don't have to go to an emergency room anytime soon. I'm blessed to have a job and a roof over my head, all those kind of things. Yeah, but Danny, but you was, have to live in Port Leash. If anybody has a right I, to be happy, it's you. This is it, you know what I mean? But like, I know that's it, and I joke about that as well, but then the other side of it as well is, and look, I mean, there are, there are literally 13,000 people who are far worse off than I am because they do not have a roof over their head, and that is a failure of government. But the reality for me is Port Leash was never my first choice. I literally could not afford to buy in the area in which I grew up and the area in which I wanted to be because it was where my friends are, where my family is. Like, you know, people are forced to go further and further afield because that's where houses are affordable for those who can even afford. But my anger with the government over all these things and all that, like when I looked in at the alternatives, I'm not exactly inspired with hope. And I think that's part of why this misplaced anger is because in Ireland, the biggest difference is between... You think misplaced of, anger is letting them away with it, though? No. I think that's a gentle what, what, way of what I mean letting by that, them away Graham, with it. What, what I mean by that is Ireland has no real alternative, right? And I'm not in any way, shape or form trying to let anyone off the hook or justify anything. But just in terms of that piece around mis- anger and misplacing anger, for want of a better term, we're due an election in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Like, realistically, Sinn Féin is the only alternative. And even at that, though, the policies aren't really going to change. So but this... see, here's the thing, right? Because if you look even the last 10 years of, of Tory uh, rule in the UK and you look at Brexit and you look at the, the hot topic of immigration, you look at the Rwanda deal with, with Richie Sunak, mm. uh, it's all a fucking shit show. You look yeah. at 10, 12 years of rule of Irish Tory uh, power again and it, it, it's no... It's no coincidence that both countries ruled by Tory uh, look to privatise everything where the common man, so to speak, the common person is left behind. And it's the whole thing of divide and conquer. It's the whole thing of once you're once you're not, once you're blaming a refugee coming in, Fine Gael, Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, Simon Harris, uh, Josephine Madigan, they do not give a shite in terms of accountability that we as Irish people are blaming the black man but, or the black but, woman, the black child. Well, look, just just let me finish this, right? Because 
and a thing that since that horrific uh, incident on Parnell Street, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of conversation, more so on the fucking hellhole of a site, Twitter. But this whole thing of enough is enough, foreigners out, no, and you know all this nonsense. Like let's let's I just have stats here, right, from the Central Statistics Office. I mean, it's very easy to go on the Central Statistics Office. You have all the stats you need. You can go to data.cso.ie and you can you can get all these stats. Anyone can get these stats. Um, but if you look at homicide murders in two, well, just 2007, for example, which is the highest uh, in about 20 years, so it was 153 homicide uh, in, in 2007. In two, I'm going to take 2019 simply because COVID years, people might have an excuse. Oh, we were told to stay in, so there wasn't enough murders. So it didn't kill anybody. <laughs> well, lockdowns, yeah, exactly. lockdowns didn't happen until 2020, just for accuracy there, Graham. Yeah, 2007, 153 murders. 2019, 63 murders. Nearly. That, that, was, that was fully less. open. There was there, just, sorry, there was no lockdowns in 2019. So no it lockdowns was, it was just as open as 2007, right? Just Exactly. Trend. Yeah. Graham, I have a exactly. banger of a statistic for you, right? If, I, I, did you have something else you wanted to pick up there? Do you before no, I give no, you this my, one? My, my point just being is that this whole enough is enough. Get them out, get them out. It doesn't, there's no stats. Come, I, come at me with stats. It, Tell I, don't, if, a, I don't have, I don't have the stats in front of me, but from what I remember, I've seen those stats, I think earlier this week, one of the papers published them, I saw them somewhere published anyway. As far as I can read, either 2021 or 2022, whatever the most recent year published was, was the, 2022. Was the fourth lowest year in terms of homicides since I think it was 2007 yeah so statistically 76 in 2022 so statistically 21 55 2020 71 right so so statistically we've gone up after the post lockdown years yeah yeah but in the grand scheme of it and bearing in mind since the EU expansion in the early 2000s we've been seeing waves of immigrants coming into the country which is a brilliant beautiful thing the diversity in Ireland is fucking fabulous lads but yeah. In in that twenty year span, violence like that is going down. That is the it's going down. That is the it's reality. Going okay. down. That's reality. Let, let me and let me press whole, the pause button whole, there, lads. Right, because I reject. Whole, sorry, enough. I I reject entirely the premise of this discussion. We shouldn't even be dignifying the idea that migrants are in some way even involved True. in a wave I of get crime. That. Right? You're right. And, and, You're right. and this, this plays into the statistic I'm about to give you, Graham, right? So a few weeks ago, I went to meet Margie Sundstrom, an Irish woman who's married to a Swedish man. She's a hotel manager here. And she's involved with UN Women in Sweden, right? The 25th of November is Orange Day, right? And that's the UN's day. But it's basically to say, right, this is where we start getting rid of violence against women and girls, right? And this statistic comes from the UN, right? One third of women are going to be subjected to physical, sexual or emotional violence, no matter where you go in the world. Right. This is not to do with race. It is not to do with religion. It is not to do with any of those things. It's that simple. It's human nature with the emphasis on the fucking man part of human. Right. Exactly. That's where it exactly. comes from. Right. And that's, what my, that's disc- what my dad said. My dad said this to me over the last two or three weeks. It's a man problem. Exactly. 
Like, like violence in general tends to be, and lads, don't get me wrong. I fucking love violence. I spent happy time watching it on the television. You know I love boxing. You know I love MMA and all those things, right? And I can fully understand why people like it because the buzz you get from it is amazing. But I keep mine to the martial arts club up the road. I don't bring it home to be here to the kitchen. I don't bring it to the bedroom and I don't bring it to the street, right? And this is the thing that... When we start to discuss things in those terms, this is why I, I actually wanted to come on the podcast and say that I'm done talking about the far right. And I'll explain what I mean about that in a second, right? But so often we end up in these discussions and it becomes like, you know, when somebody's at the karaoke and they point the microphone at the speaker and you just get the feedback goes, and nobody can listen, it freaks everybody out, right? That's what our discourse is at the moment, right? It's just noise. Nobody can hear anything because we're not talking about the right things, right? So in the aftermath of what happened last Thursday night in Dublin, you're burning Lewis's and cables gone and guard of cars gone up in smoke and fellas getting hurt. Some fella, I believe he got married. He lost a toe, one of the guards there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, in the aftermath of that, what we heard about was policing, right? What happened last Thursday wasn't a policing problem. What happened last Thursday was the fact that we have sold out absolutely everything that is to be sold out in Ireland. We can't afford to live in our own homes, right? We're, you want to see the rents I'm seeing from the Swedes who, who are asking me, oh, I got a job in Google or in Facebook or in Twitter in Dublin. I need somewhere to live. And I got the best of bleeding look with that. Like, So take whatever you're getting and then some and all your savings and give it to a landlord, right? So when all of that happens and then we fill the vacuum with conversations around crime statistics and that kind of thing, this is why I'm walking away from those discussions because they don't give us anything. The proper response to what happened on Thursday night should have been that the Irish government comes out at nine o'clock on Friday morning and says, we are building 100,000 affordable homes with 50,000 of them in Dublin, right? That's the answer. The answer is not more Gardaí. It's not rushing them through Templemore. It's not even more equipment, which they ran out of on the night I have from a very reliable source in, in the guards, right? It's not any of those things. When you're doing that, right? It's like, you know, when you open an oncology ward for cancer patients, would, would not the best thing to be doing uh, to be stopping everybody smoking, right? So it's great that you have that. And when you need it, it's great that it's there. But we need to be cutting these things off at source, right? And with health, that's always in, in primary care and in preventative care. And it's the same thing for society, right? The riot is the cry of the unheard. I, I don't know if it was Martin Luther King who said it. And that's what we had on Thursday night, right? And I've seen it for five nights in a row just up the street here when a man was shot dead in 2013 by the police. And all the anger around the police lying about that man's death led to five nights of burning cars and burning shops and burning suburbs. And I was in the middle of it because I knew most of the young who were doing it because they were so angry at the police, right? But just to back up just a little bit further, Graham, you were talking about that. And indeed, Dan, you touched on it as well there, right? Over the hundred years of the state and since the 80s, like emigration has always been the pressure valve. The reason we haven't had these things as much as other countries have had, because you had the Brixton riots in the 1980s in London as well. We haven't really had those kinds of things in Ireland until now, right? Emigration has been a pressure valve because young fellas and young ones in their 20s and early 30s will just leave and they go to Sydney and they're on Bondi Beach and they go, well, I don't miss home at all. I'd murder a fucking super queen sausage, but I'm here, the sun is shining and I'm getting $30 an hour, right? They're delighted with themselves. So that has been, that has sort of released a pressure. Not everybody can do that anymore and not everybody can do that as it is. You know, Dan, I don't think you're in any hurry to leave Ireland anytime soon, right? But in the 1990s, what we had was a collapse in the rest of Europe of post-war social democracy, right? And the man behind that is Tony Blair, 
right? Tony Blair realised after Thatcherism that in order to get into office, the Tory or the Labour Party needed to attract people from the Tory side of the House, right? They needed to attract Tory voters, right? So what he did was he watered down the socialism or the social democracy that the Labour Party stood for and turned it into being all things for all men. Of course you can have low taxes and of course you can have great public services. And then when you run out of money, there's no public services at all, right? So him, Bill Clinton, and there was a guy called George Stephanopoulos, who I think turns up on CNBC on occasion now as well, right? He was a political advisor to Bill Clinton and he was the one who came up with the thing to kill democracy when he told Bill Clinton... All you need is six and ten people to agree with you, right? And to get back to, to Graham and, and at your point as well, Dan, that when Fina Grail see what's happening, when Fina Falls see what's happening, they're actually quietly delighted, right? Because as long as six and ten people agree with them or agree with them at any given time, they're still in there, right? They're delighted that they're not being blamed, that it's Ukrainians that are being blamed, that it's Syrians and Afghans and Algerians that are being blamed for what's happening in the country, when in fact it's a hundred years of the same fucking people doing the same thing, right? One point I would absolutely love to make, and it's going to make Danny's dancing around the libel laws look like a fucking hoedown here for a second, right? Several TDs <laughs> got up in the doll recently, right? And they talked about unvetted males. And if you were moving into a particular county in Ireland, you know, and you were to get a house there, you'd be checked out, right? The same TD who was saying that has two nephews who were accused and found guilty after trial of assaulting a British tourist, right? They appealed. They were still found guilty, right? Have they been vetted? Is there any... I don't want those lads in Dublin. I want roadblocks on every road to keep them out of Dublin. They may stay in Kerry. We don't want their problems imported into our fine city, right? If that's the way we're going to look at things, that's grand, right? If you want to go hard on it, absolutely. But let's apply the same rules across the board. A certain MMA fighter coming out and talking about protecting women and children. There isn't a woman in Ireland would feel safe in his company. And from, from 9 to 90, right? It's just... That's just the way it is, right? So, if we're going to talk about these things, absolutely. But let's let all our cards on the table here when we're talking about these things. Back to what we're saying. What Tony Blair did, right, and what he did for all of social democracy in Europe was he killed it, right? After that, the government in Sweden started to privatise, in particular the school system, which is now a fucking disaster area, right? Then they privatised, or started to privatise healthcare and dentistry. They privatised public transport when I moved here. When I moved here, you could buy a monthly uh, tra travel card here for 35, 36 euros, right? It's now the guts of 100 euros, and the service is about half as good, right? Most of the things have been taken away. You don't even have, for somebody like yourself, Graham, who uses a wheelchair, uh, until very recently, you would have somebody on every commuter train who would help you on and off if needs be. Not the way now where you have to call the dart and say, look, I want to use this train going to this place. I want to get on at this station, get off at this. There'd always be somebody there to help you. You just position yourself at a certain place on the platform and they'll be there to help you. They were taken away now because profits have to be made, right? And in yeah. doing that, what happened there, lads, was that from the post-war period, right, Norway was occupied by the Nazis during the Second World War. They went to war with Finland. Uh, they occupied Denmark as well. Sweden was neutral, but they allowed the Nazis to pass through, right? But in the post-war prosperity that Sweden drove, because Sweden still had its industry intact and its timber in particular intact, it was perfectly placed to rebuild Europe with companies like Ericsson and Saab and Volvo, right? They powered that, right? But the rising tide through social democracy and through solidarity lifted all the boats, right? You had the million, what they call the million program. The million, pro they built a million homes in 10 years, 1,006,000 to be exact, right? In 10 years, that's 100,000 a year. Houses 
apartments of all sizes from like a studio apartment for a single fella to everything to the fella who has four or five, or the fella or the girl who has four or five kids, right? Those things were subsequently sold out. That solidarity is gone. That was the cornerstone of housing in this country. And it's gone, right? And when that happened in the 90s, that was when the far right started to gain a proper foothold in Scandinavia. They always had it. They were always there, sort of, you know, down the country, out there doing hand-to-hand combat in the forest, fucking 12 blokes with a bottle of putchy and enjoying their weekends and talking about fucking Hitler, right? But it was only really in the, the mid-1990s that it started to take off. Yeah, exactly. In the nude with tattoos and swastikas on, on Danny's feet, not on Danny's feet, but on their shaven feet, right? Go easy, go was, easy. Danny, you will make a fortune out of this if you do. Just saying, right? But that was where the vacuum started to exist, right? And when you start to put the onus for everything on the individual, as we have in the United States of America, for instance, where obesity is off the charts, where poverty is off the charts, 40 million people are living in the equivalent of trailer parks, right? That's the American dream for many people. When you put the individual or make the individual responsible for literally everything that happens in their life, and then you rig the house against them, this is what you get. What you get is a burning O'Connell Street. What you get is people so angry that they they really want to take somebody on over. And who are you going to go for? You're going to go for the weakest in society. It's I I, it's, I get that and I get your I get your point about you know you're stepping away from a certain argument. The context in which I was just given those stats was because it, after that horrific uh, attack on Parnell Street, the narrative was, you know, I saw loads of content of tweets of saying let's get them out that's it enough is enough get them out get them out as if this was a migrant problem you know so and there are people there are people that otherwise wouldn't be involved in this type of conversation that are getting involved and you would think you know how how do we can't how do we counter that how do we do we just ignore it fear and anger go hand in hand i think right fear and anger you you make them afraid, and that drives the anger. And when they're angry, they're more afraid. It's a vicious circle, right? Yeah. So what we're seeing is it's people have been, as Phil, Phil has pointed out very, very well, the seeds have been sown for quite a while because it's that drip feed of taking away from people and making life more difficult for people and giving them a reason to feel hard done by. And it, it then becomes a projection piece where that anger is now projected onto Johnny Foreigner. And what we saw in those riots, fundamentally, what the fuck has got to do with, with the, 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 the absolute horrific, nobody for one second is saying what happened is in any way acceptable in terms of the, 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 the stabbing attack and everything else. Everybody, everybody knows how absolutely horrible that was, regardless of anything else. But in response to it, the, the 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 riot response, the protest, and I'm using air quotes there deliberately because it wasn't a protest. It was not a protest. It was opportunistic violence driven by anger. And what we all have to remember here is Foot Locker and robbing a right foot of a Yeezy and trying to match it to the left foot of the Yeezy that's being raided 20 minutes earlier has fuck all to do with justice for any victim of any crime. Raiding exactly. JD Sports for your 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 Christmas clothes has fuck all to do with anything. But we need to be very careful because as Phil has pointed out, in a way, this suits 
that government that we should all be angry at because in the wake of it and in the immediate aftermath of it, we saw that classes divide and merge. We saw people and their masks slipped because their instant response was well for them to be out rioting late at night. It's not like they have to be up for work in the morning. We should cancel their dole. We should, and TDs and politicians were talking about, we should cancel their welfare as if this is a problem that only applies. This sort of thing is only because they are working class. And yeah. this divide and conquer thing and this make an enemy out of my enemy and then I have a free, like, there's so many fucking bits of the chessboard we moved, so many little nuances and all that. And it's all within the language and it's all within it. And I can't articulate it. I don't have the brain to articulate it. Somebody like Phil who was being, you know, covering this sort of stuff for so long and has a much better experience in terms of being able to make points and call on past experiences is in a far better position for, than, than I to do so. But, for me, what seems really, really apparent is that when we look at Ireland and when we look at social commentary, there is very much an us and them. When in an exactly. ideal world, there is no them, there is only us. Exactly. So let's look at the riot in itself. Let's look at what a riot is, right? Because even apolitical rioters, rioters are saying, no, no, I'm just here, you know, for, I mean, you know, apropos of nothing, I have to say P.T. Carroll's Christmas tracksuit, apparently it's absolutely brilliant this year, but that's not true with J.D.'s thoughts. I don't know who, I don't know why that crossed my mind at all. I've heard he has to pop back into town with a security tag that never came off for some reason. So, Or else there's ink just down the side instead of a strike, you know? <laughs> but, but if we look at the mechanics of a riot, lads, because none of these things, these things have all happened before, right? And we looked at that on Tories Night. We we feel that we've never seen anything like that before. But there's actually a rake of academic research that, exp what, that explains what happens in a civil disturbance like that, right? And I have to say, when I said I love violence, I'm not fucking joking, right? I've been to Oslo University to talk to some of the experts about this after what happened here in 2013, right? I had a fascinating conversation with a professor over there, and he was telling me once that only between about 6 to 10% of the people who are involved are actually committed to the goals of the riot, right? So when these things appear, you will have had people being called to the spire at seven o'clock. We've seen certain councillors or council candidates calling people, <laughs> let's meet at the spire, tool up, you know, get, let's let's get going, right? Sure, Phil, 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 we were at war. Oh, they, they, uh, yeah, exactly. So all of these things feed into that, right? And it's not linear, right? So what you're dealing with is basically, you know, like a word cloud that we used to do in PowerPoint presentations where we're looking smart, right? Um, so, so that's what you're dealing with there. All of these things feed in and they are the sparks that I was talking about, right? And then you have the opportunists who come in. But even then, lads, many of the targets that were taken on during the civil disturbance that happened, when people saw the opportunity to express their anger, they aimed at what they saw as the agents of the state, being the Gardaí, the Lewis and the Buses, right? That's what they wanted to attack, send a message to the state, right? What a riot does is it removes you and me and anybody else taking part of their individuality, right? We feel that we can do whatever we want and that we're not going to get caught. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. And to feel that sense of power on the street, to feel that you own that street, the street of your city, and now everybody's afraid of you, that's addictive. Anger is addictive and violence to a certain extent is addictive as well, right? And you give people a taste of that and they're going to end up coming back for more, right? But that 6 to 10%, that's hardcore, right? They have people around them. They can come forward, they can throw a petrol bomb into a Lewis and then they can disappear back into the crowd. But when the other 90 to 94% decides, that's it, I've had enough, your riot is over.
That, just like that, it's like it's literally like flicking a switch because those who are committed to keeping th this thing going have nowhere to hide anymore. That's why every riot has a start, a middle, and an end, right? And what is fascinating is the fact that I read somewhere that it cost like 20 million just to damage the transport of the city centre alone, right? Uh, yeah, the yeah. two shops, I was kind of surprised that more looting wasn't done. And the one thing that absolutely surprises me more, uh, I was extremely worried on Thursday night. I fully believe, and it's not over yet, that the far right is going to kill people of colour in Ireland in the very near future, right? I'm surprised it didn't happen on Thursday night. I think our Brazilian community, our Algerian community, our, our Muslim community had the, the basic common sense to get off the streets, which in itself is a horrible thing, in the streets of their own hometown, and they have to leave because these mugs are, are, are doing this, and the Gardaí aren't able to protect them. That's an awful thing. But it was the right thing to do last week because they couldn't be protected. The Gardaí could barely even protect themselves, right? But when we get into that situation, and this is why um, our friend Mr. McGregor is going to have problems, right? Because I don't know, like, you know, the, the law about incitement to violence and that kind of thing. You know, Joe Brawley seems absolutely convinced that he could take a case against McGregor and probably do him on it, right? I think that he absolutely contributed to, to you know, the tweets that he was putting out there and saying, Ireland, we are at war and this kind of thing and tried to roll back from any of them. And as usual, he deleted half of them as he went along, right? But he has played his part in all of this, as have certain TDs, as has a certain prize donkey of a senator who keeps getting up in there and Jesus, she only opens her mouth to change feet. But these people keep digging themselves further and further and further into a hole. And what they don't realise now, we mentioned it earlier on, lads, the genie is out of the bottle, right? Once you've done this once, right, you know who's going to respond when you put out that call on Telegram or on X or on Instagram or wherever it is. It was Instagram many years ago here down in Gothenburg. There's a huge riot happening in Gothenburg. My daughter's actually studying it at the moment. We like to do these. Other families play board games. We study riots in this family, you know. But <laughs> this is how these things take off. And the danger is then, it's basically like a brush fire in summer in a warm country, like in California or somewhere like that. Unless we deal with these things now, this could easily happen again. And what makes it so difficult and so fascinating is we have no idea Okay, this could happen in Ballyfermot, it could happen in Balbriggan, it could happen in Port Leash, it could happen in, in Galway, it could happen in, in Fairmont, it could happen absolutely anywhere. All you need is the right incident, and not even an incident, all you need is the right rumour, and all of a sudden, this all kicks off again, right? And this is why... There's such an effort has to be put in now by all the agents of the state. I mean, the Guardian, I mean, the Fire Brigade, but most of all, the government and anybody sitting in Leinster House. This is the time to start forgetting about all the things that they don't have in common and to pull together because there is a common enemy here, right? We mentioned fear and anger and Danny is entirely correct when he talked about how fear and anger feed one another, right? If somebody knocks on the door, my, my child comes in here, right? And she says that somebody's after her. The first thing I'm going to be is afraid and the next thing I'm going to be is angry and the next thing that's going to happen is violence if that needs be, right? And it's going to take a long time to talk me down off that ledge, right? That's just the way these things work in the most basic of formats, right? But the third part, and this is the tale that wags the dog, is those with a deep-seated hatred of immigrants, of gay people, of people with disabilities, of trans people, right? They are a tiny, tiny minority, but they are getting more and more practised and more and more skilled at whipping up others to go and do their violent, dirty work for them right? How do they do that? They go onto social media, they create these things like the idiot senator was talking about the other day when she talked about some family from Asia who come into Ireland via Belfast and were given a brand new three-room apartment straight away, right? Uh, let me just roll back on that. Again, this is one of those discussions I absolutely despise having, right? 
do you know what people on direct provision get paid in terms of money? Have you exactly. seen the conditions they live in? Phil, do you Phil, think people are queuing up to do that? Phil, I had a I had a player for the Bulls, Mandela. He um he legged it from Zimbabwe because um of a sexuality. His sexuality wasn't welcome in his country. As he tried to flee, he jumped out of his apartment building. He thought he would make it the jump and he broke his back. He got in the back of a van. He didn't know where he was going to end up. He ended up in Ireland. He then became a patient in the National Rehabilitation Hospital and he became under Spinal Injuries Ireland. He he we linked up with him. We um we got him a, a sports chair. He played basketball with us. He was in the Clondalkin Towers Direct Provision Centre. He was on 3850 a week. Two hours uh, on Monday nights made him smile. Um, of the 38.50 per week, he wasn't eligible. Even though he was disabled, he broke his back because the Zimbabwe authorities wanted to arrest him because of his sexuality. Um, he was on. He wasn't eligible for a disability uh, travel pass. I sponsored him for six months from January to May for him to get from uh, Clondalkin on the Lewis into uh, O'Connell Street and then the seven from O'Connell Street to Lockenstown Legislature Centre. I sponsored him. It was it was twelve fifty, I believe, a journey, but twelve fifty of the thirty eight fifty he gets a week was gone just on him having recreational. I mean, people people think that um, it's it, it's 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 primarily non Ukrainian refugees who are on the thirty eight fifty per week, and people think they're on this gravy train they're on they're getting this they're getting that they're getting the other you go to any social welfare department you ask the department you ask the CSO about the figures and you get they're on 38 euro 50 per week anyone disputing that doesn't want to know the facts hmm. but that's do you remember there, there, there's a deliberate ignorance though as well because it doesn't suit the narrative and the second you try to the second you try to reason, the second you try to present facts, and I think Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, this probably plays into some of your frustration and why you're sick of having these conversations. Because that's you can't reason with a madman. You can't I know, but these conversations the... sometimes are they're now they're now like if you look at the last general election in twenty twenty, uh two percent of people wanted to talk about immigration. Yeah, but Tink right... Ireland did a poll last week, that's gone up to twenty percent. So those conversations are coming into our dining rooms. They're going into schools. They're, so we, we have to have the conversation. But the problem is the motive behind the question, they don't like the answer and they don't listen to the answer. But So so this is the thing, right? Sorry for interrupting you, Dan, right? We spoke there about riots and the mechanics of a riot and how this happens and how violence makes you feel powerful, right? Anger makes you feel pretty much the same thing. The buzz isn't as great, right? But when you're sitting there and your life has been miserable and you failed your leave insert and you can't get a job, right? Or if you're sitting there and you work for an investment bank and you lost your job, or if you're still working for the investment bank, but you absolutely hate it and you're taking coke at the weekends and your missus has left you and the two sides of your nose are now just one side of your nose because you burned the shite out of it, right? When you realise that there's an out for this, there is one thing that will make you feel better and that's being told, not your fault, mate. 
that's your man's fault. That brown fella over there, that's his fault. He came in here and ruined everything. Do you remember when your ma and your granny used to be able to leave the key in the hall door? You couldn't do that anymore. These cunts be in there to be raping them like no man's business, right? And when you feel that anger, right, all of a sudden, that anger leads to a sense of empowerment, right? So people who feel powerless against the state, people who feel powerless because they can't find a home to live in, because they can't afford to get the Lewis into town to play basketball, when they feel powerless over these things, that gives them back a sense of empowerment. And that's why, Dan, they are so totally immune to the logic and the facts, right? Because it's so pervasive, right? If you go back to, I remember sitting in a, the Tower Hotel in the centre of Helsinki, at the very top of the hotel, they have a lovely bar. I would never take the stairs up there. It's far too high up, right? But myself and a guy called Daniel Freecombe sat up there one night about 15 or 20 years ago talking about journalism. And I despair Rise tabloid reporting, as you well know. I hate stories where all the calories are in the headline and there's nothing in the story, right? I like good, meaty, long-form reporting, well-thought-out stuff with a good theory that where you go and you get experts in and you find out what the real story is, right? And he was saying to me, look, there's a place for that. And I was going, there shouldn't be a place for that. And he's going, look, at, go back to the 1800s, the time of Jack the Ripper, right? The, 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 what they used to have at the time in London were called Penny Dreadfuls. And Penny Dreadfuls were the tabloids of their day. You could buy these things and they would give you the most gruesome details about murder, none of which were true. But the more gruesome the detail, the more horrified people were the more they believed them, right? If because it leads, it, it leads, Philip. It exactly, leads, it Danny, right? That's exactly what it is. So you put that out there, and then all of a sudden, you create an ecosystem, right? There's two ways to feel as a human being, right? There's two ways to feel. One is the feeling of anger and fear, which keeps us on our toes, and which makes us active and makes us defend what's ours and take more and be that sort of, you know, alpha male kind of thing, you know, I'm going to take what's mine. And the other is to be loved, right? And it's far fucking harder to allow yourself to be loved than it is to allow yourself to be afraid. And this, lads, is why I'm done talking about these things, right? I don't want to talk about the far right anymore. I don't want to talk about 24 lads in a telegram group who are orchestrating these things and whipping up this fear because they're not suffering from fear or anger. These are the people who truly hate others, right? I believe that there's very, very few bad people in this world. There are very, very few, a small handful of people with hatred in their hearts and I'm just not giving them the oxygen anymore, lads. What I want to talk about in the future is how we can fix this society for everybody, for our friend from Zimbabwe, because I remember you telling me about him at the time, Graham, and I think I even said to you that one or two months, I'd, I'd happily throw in a few quid just to have the yep. fella playing basketball, right? But for him and for Danny, you know, I'd pay any money for Danny not to have to live in Port Leash. But what we all want for ourselves <laughs> and for our loved ones, and we said this in the podcast before, is a place to lay our head, something in our fridge and on our table, and the people we love and who love us around us. But we find it so difficult, right? Because the same high that you get from that anger and violence. Love doesn't give you that. After a while, the first time you meet somebody and Dan, I'm sure, you know, you've had the, the wonder of getting married in the last couple of years and whatever happens in your family and God knows that, that Graham, I see you on Tinder seven nights a week you know, so obviously you're there for the <laughs> same buzz and hopefully sometime you'll find, but you know the way the love of a family is a very comfortable thing, right? And it's not always that sort of intense, love at first sight, first five dates, first holiday together, going to somebody's Debs. That's not what it is, right? 
but it's so much warmer and so much more secure than this anger and fear. And yet we allow ourselves to be convinced that the fear makes us thrive. And the fear is kind of like, you know, when you go and you get a Red Bull or get one of these energy drinks, you get that buzz off it and you're forever chasing the same thing. But like everything you get a buzz from, you tend to need more and more and more of it to get the yeah. same effect. And when you're doing that, then you go deeper and deeper and deeper down these rabbit holes, right? And by doing that, by having these discussions with people online, this is why I just block them or I ignore them. I don't engage at all anymore, really especially not with people who are anonymous, because not only am I feeding their anger and feeding their fear, because people look at me, I've been told this offline as well by people, there's certain people in the Irish far right and they will do absolutely anything to provoke me because being seen to be in an argument with me is a victory for them. They don't even have to say I'm clever. But just for me to acknowledge their existence is, an, is, is a victory for them. Uh, a great American academic, Whitney Phillips, who wrote that paper called The Oxygen of Amplification, that I'm sure people who have listened to this podcast regularly are probably tired of me referencing it. But that's like, I learned that from her. She was just, just don't do it. Just don't give them the oxygen of amplification. Because when you allow the far right, and Graham, I think you mentioned that figure, 20% of people want to talk about immigration, right? What happens in Sweden, what's happened in the UK, what's happened all over the world is when you allow them to play on their home turf, you're the away team. You're at a disadvantage. And even if you shift towards the right, as Sinn Féin might do, as Fianna Fáil will definitely do, as Fianna Gael are already halfway in bed with these larries to begin with, right? If you shift to the right, you know, it's like wrestling with a pig. You know, they'll just, they'll, you know, they'll beat you and they'll enjoy it, right? Or what was it? Oh, it's like arguing with an idiot. Sorry, you know, they'll bring you down to their level and then beat you with experience, right? So by allowing the discussions to take place, that moral cowardice I was talking about again, about just asking questions, that creates the playing field for them to serve up their greatest hits, right? And I can sit here and I can pull any fact you like out of my arse and it's not going to make the blindest bit of difference. The moment I start to discuss society's problems in terms of skin colour, in terms of religion, in terms of gender, in terms of physical ability or disability, in terms of sexual preference, anything else like that, I have lost and I can never win. This is why the only thing I'm talking about in the future in public on podcasts like this is solidarity. I'm only ever going to talk, and it's the only thing I do talk about, is how much I love the two of you and how much I love everybody else in the world and what I can do to help them. And I'm coming off a weekend without being a pompous bastard about the whole thing, but I come across as that anyway. But last week, we had a brilliant do in uh, in Stockholm for the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden. So it's all sort of Irish, Irish-related businesses, some of them Irish-owned, some with Swedes and that kind of thing. And we got together and lads, I'm still buzzing off the talent in that room and the sense of community in that room and the idea that we can be North men, South men, comrades all and come together and support one another. And I'm promoting their businesses and they're telling people to listen to my podcast and everything is just, Jesus, like, you know, I'm almost getting the same buzz as when I was throwing petrol bombs. Danny cut that out. But that's the kind of buzz that you get. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I've, now I've now found a replacement for my righteous anger, if you like, in that sense of solidarity. And that really is the gospel that we need to be preaching to people because as Dan says there's no them and no, there's only us and to anybody who's listened to this as well who has a relative who's gone down that that rabbit hole or a spouse or a friend or somebody in their basketball team or like that or if you feel you're going down that way or so, there's always a road back as I said there's very very few bad apples in this world and there's a it's very very unlikely that you're one of them 
But if you walk away from what you're being told, because they're getting you addicted to anger, right? And, you know, but by doing that, then you're just looking for more and more of it. Walk away. It's never too late to walk away. Forgiveness is everywhere. Redemption is everywhere. As long as you are ready to put your shoulder to the wheel and do the things and push in the same direction we all need to go for to create a better society, then you're always welcome back. It's never too late. But the, the, well, I want to thank just, you, Phil. Firstly, right, because that monologue gave me a brief moment to eat me pizza. So thanks for that. Right. <laughs> I saw I saw it coming in there and it thought, Jesus, six minutes I'll do it. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't believe it got food delivered to me by the lovely Oksana who you you, you mentioned there and everything else. And I suppose on, for me, I've, I've got a bit of skin in this game because Oksana is not Irish, right? I mean she's a citizen, she you know what I mean, but she was born outside, so she's felt this a little bit more. And then some of the abuse that I've received online for speaking out about this has been targeted at her, and that's not fair on her. So I don't really speak about this online anymore because I don't want to put her through it. So when you're saying all these things and you're talking about that fact of, you know, that you argue with an idiot, they'll bring you down to their level and they'll beat you with experience and all that. You're absolutely right. And I I love the message that you're giving of like, of you cannot fight fire with fire. The only way to overcome this is by reconciliation and showing love. And I think for anyone who is there or anyone who knows anyone down that rabbit hole and they're kind of thinking now's the time to broach the subject and maybe they see that little chink in the armor now because hopefully people saw what happened in Dublin a couple of weeks ago and they go, I want no part of that. If that is the world that I'm entering into, I want no part of that. So I'll suggest a little bit of prescribed reading, lads. And the wonderful Eva Gallagher, who was once on this podcast and her book, Web of Lies, is a fucking fantastic, fantastic But then even, even, okay. even remember... We 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 had the interview with Aoife. Do you know the, the abuse we got? I don't believe like, yeah. And the same and I was gonna say, and if if you're if you're not a book person, that's fine. We had Eva on the podcast, we also had Brent Lee on the podcast, who was a reformed and Brent, he was so far down that fucking rabbit hole. He had the fucking architecture blueprints and everything else. That he was deep. If Brent can come out of the rabbit hole, absolutely. anybody can. Anybody can. Phil, in, in terms of uh, a bit of Levity, brevity, whatever you want to put on it. You've mentioned as well the 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 phrase of um, what was it? You said you the, the you you can't put the genie back in the bottle or something, was it? Yeah, yeah. Of you uh, now just just apropos of nothing, lads. And because you've done apropos of nothing already, Phil, I just thought I'd enlighten you with. There's a version of that saying that my old Latin teacher used to use, which is like to hear it. Jesus, Merrill, get your man. Go ahead, give it to me, Dan. Oh. It was non potes in sterico equo you cannot put the Lunes. shit back in the horse horse that's <laughs> the only one they knew Lunes, was horse didn't is poncy wonsy stuff listen, you cannot no. put the shit back in the horse I'm only joking I, want, I wanted to just briefly say uh, Phil you mentioned Joe Brolly there and Joe Brolly and Dion Fannin have a really good podcast called Free State <clears throat> and Joe has been covering a uh, I've listened to Joe and, and Dion since they began but it has heated up in recent weeks uh, in regards to what's been going on on the island. But I had to laugh because you're talking about lawyers and stuff like that. Like Joe, Joe was talking about the the perpetrator and he said, uh, he said, he used the phrase gentleman and they, they latched on that. Some of, uh, someone Notoriously, um, that we might know, uh, it's Conor McGregor, 
Just say it. It was Conor that, McGregor. That lanced on that uh, and, and made it out. That made it out that um, that Joe was being courteous and he was being honourable to this perpetrator. When in actual fact, people forget that people, particularly uh, of Joe's ilk, who's a legal barrister, used it in the formal way. But these mm. are the things that they try and latch on. And 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 I mean, your argument is pretty fucking weak if you're picking one word out of a 45 minute podcast. And I'd grant probably granted that they didn't even listen to the podcast. This is the thing, right? So and, and like Joe is, you know, a masterful uh, orator. You know, like I, I often think of, you know, Free State is the Joe Broly podcast introduced every week by Dion Fanning kind of thing, yeah. you know, because he will. <laughs> It's like me when I come on here and I just fucking talk over you. It's exactly like, like you, you bollocks. Dion does be like, okay, Joe, 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 Joe. And, and it's like Joe's not even, or Dion's not even there. That's how we yeah. feel like with you, fellow. I, I actually transcribed our podcast one day. The only thing that Dion said was, let me finish my point. And uh, it's still like the two of them in the pub. But, but, but when they do that, right, this happens the whole time because, like, it's it's very much, the far right is very much a meme and a soundbite culture. You know, now Eva Gallagher will tell you much more in a much more educated manner about these things. But that's what they do. They'll take one thing out of context and they'll put it out there, right? Whereas if you actually listen to what Joe was saying, and I thought, that Joe, I was listening to it today, actually. Today is Thursday and there was an episode out today as we're recording, right? And Joe was very, um, Joe seemed to be holding out a sort of an olive branch to Conor McGregor, right? And I remember when uh, when Conor's documentary, when the documentary Notorious came out about Conor, was like, there's now on Netflix and that kind of thing, right? I went over to Dublin because the lads behind Severe MMA, Graham McDonald in particular, was had loads of that footage. He, he works with Conor and he's been filming it for years and that kind of thing. And he arranged it. So I came over and I was actually, Ryan Torberty was the first one to interview Conor that Friday afternoon for the Late Late Show. Or was it a Thursday afternoon? I can't remember. And I was next at six o'clock in a hotel just off uh, Merrion Square, right? And Conor was actually early to an interview for the first time in his life. And they rang me. And of course, I was there even, even earlier, right? Just around the corner. And I went in. And that was around the time that Conor had been hauled over the coals because he'd been backstage with Artem Lobov at an event somewhere, some MMA event somewhere. And he used the word faggot, Right. So, and I apologize for using this word in your show and I hope it hasn't upset anybody, but he used that word and he got into a whole world of trouble over it, right? And he apologized to me and he'd apologized previously on, on the Late Late Show for using that word. And he said, there's no handbook to fame, right? And the impression I've always got with Connor is that Connor is somebody who desperately wants to be loved, wants to be loved, right? And if he doesn't want to be loved, like if he can't be loved, he wants to be feared, right? And that's often the way, you know, and you'll find that, you know, in the patriarchal society that we lived in, I'd say, you know, the 90% of fathers may have been like that, right? That they either wanted to be loved or feared and they didn't care much either way, right? I honestly believe that somewhere buried in that person who became that millionaire, if not billionaire by that point, right? There's still... A, a, a yawning hole in Conor McGregor's life. And I go back to when Christy Dignam, I worked with Aslan many years ago. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Stop, stop me if I told it on a podcast before, but I worked briefly for a company out in Ashtown who were looking after Aslan in terms of booking them and doing their PR and that kind of thing, you know? And I once uh, wrote quotes and attributed them to Billy McGuinness. Uh, they played a gig in Mountjoy Prison and I think the star had been there taking some photographs and they, said, they rang the office and they said, oh, we need, a, we need a couple of quotes and I couldn't get hold of Billy. And then the journalist rang back, he said, you get Billy? I said, yeah, yeah, Billy said it was the most captive audience they'd ever played to and they actually printed it in the newspaper. But there was one time we were talking out there and uh, Christy Dignam got onto the subject for some reason completely unbidden about how he got into taking heroin. And he described to me, he said, Phil, do you know have you ever had that feeling like that there's a hole inside you, right? And no matter what you do, you can't fill it, right? And then he said, I took heroin 
and I felt what you feel like. I felt normal, right? So it's not even that he got a buzz off it. He said he just felt whole for the first time in his life. And when I see Conor McGregor, I've, like, at the same time as I despise the things he's saying and the hatred and the anger that he's whipping up, I absolutely despise that. And some of the things that he have, has been accused of in the past and some of the things he's been convicted for in the past, I despise everything to do with that. I distance myself entirely from it. But there's a person in there somewhere who is lost, right? Like all of us, there's a little child in there somewhere that is lost and that just needs to be loved. And when I said, lads, that redemption is there for everybody, I mean it. Redemption is there for absolutely everybody. But I cannot, God knows I've tried, but I cannot redeem you, Graham Merrow Merrigan, right? It's up to you to take the first step on that path. And that means switching off social media, throwing away the joint, throwing away the pipe, staying out the off-license in the pub, and sitting with yourself and saying to yourself, when did I get this angry? And why? How did I let other people use my anger for something I really don't believe in? And when I don't you disagree come- with the context of what you're saying. I think, it, I think there's a part of it that could be a get out of jail card for for him um but i i understand the context in terms of redemption and stuff like that and i get that um but what what, where do you think this whole because there is a bit of a evangelical kind of christian side to him in the last maybe year or two you know praise god and holy god this and holy god that which is fine obviously but it how do you how do you um be a god lover so to speak or a god worshipper and have so much hate what did this is the thing all those things are tied together right so what putin and doing in what putin is doing in russia is very much tied to the orthodox church and going back to the values that he feels that that country was built on our own country whether we like it or not was built on a very strong sense of religi- religiosity it was built on a catholic moral teaching right and to this day we still struggle with it right when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s i thought great i'd been through punk rock i'd been through hip hop i've been through all these things we were emancipated we were the first generation that didn't think in the first hand that you know I have to get a job and get married we probably still did but even now when i look at the younger generations like yourselves and the people coming after you i realize that we were still carrying those chains for so long so the fact that connor's tied up in, the, in these things it's the same thing the christian right in america is essentially donald donald trump's support base right so these things go hand and, in and, hand. and he has he has complimented donald trump in the past he has been yeah, photographed sure. with putin in the past saying how much of a great leader he is they're two fucking scumbags to be uh, but, but this is it but again like, but again, Graham, what does he get out of that, right? He gets this sense of satisfaction, right? When Connor was coming up, and it's it's amazing now, I, I usually say that he went from being Ireland's greatest ambassador to being our greatest embarrassment, right? What Conor McGregor did for Ireland and the Irish, for young generations of, of men your age wandering around in Sweden and in Germany, and his name is everywhere. Everybody knows who he who he is, right? Until that time when he pushed a glass of whiskey across the, the, the table towards Khabib Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov in the Radio City Music Hall. I was there filming it and I went, oh God, that's gone. And the following night, I was up the road at the football pitch here and the Muslim young fans were coming up and going, that's him, that's him done. Right? Never going to speak about him again. These were huge fans of his. Every time I walked down the street, people, like young fans, you know, teenagers would be asking me, oh, when's Connor fighting again? What's he doing? What was it like being over there? What's he really like? And that kind of thing. What's Ireland like? You know? And now all of that was traded in, right? So he traded the love of an awful lot of Irish fans and then an awful lot of global fans for these people like Trump and like Putin and like, you know, whoever else is on that sort of far right thing. But I think that that search in him, because 
there's nothing in it. It's like I mentioned earlier on about news stories where all the calories are in the headline and nothing in the story, right? That respect in inverted commas that you get from somebody like Putin, Putin doesn't give a shit. Putin is doing that just to look like a strong man, right? He doesn't care a jot about Conor McGregor. The moment Conor McGregor is an embarrassment or, or, or costs him anything in terms of his reputation, he'll get rid of him, you know? And that ultimately is what it comes down to, is what we're missing. Like that hole that was in Christy Dignam that he filled with heroin, is we, we lack that sense of fulfillment. And the more you have, the more money you have, the more status, the more fame, the more people want to come up and take selfies with you, the more you wonder, what the fuck is the matter with me? But all of this can't make me happy, that I need more and more. I need more power. I need more control. The things that he has been uh, accused of and the kind of crimes that he has been involved in, slapping a phone out of somebody's hand, right? Uh, attacking that man in the pub, for instance, right? These are all crimes of power, right? They're all crimes of him showing you that he is bigger, he is greater, he's more powerful than whoever it is that he happens to be attacking. Even attacking the bus in New York City that time when he thought Khabib was sitting on it. I know a couple of the fighters were on the bus and they said it was the most terrifying thing they were ever involved in. And that's the point. The point is to either be loved or feared. But the little child in Connor is not satisfied by the fear or by the anger or even by the respect or the money. It doesn't get them what they want. How many children do you hear from, lads, who say that, oh, you know, my father worked here. He made a million euros a year. We went skiing in, I don't know if you go skiing in Santa Fe. I have no fucking idea, right? We went skiing in the Alps and then we went to, you know, the Maldives and all these kinds of things. But I would have traded everything just to go to a soccer match or for him to come and see me training with, with a hurling team, right? That is irreplaceable. No money in the world can buy that because that is connection and that's what we're all looking for. It's a, it's a very fitting example to reference in a clunky segue somehow. It's very cats in the cradle and we're recording this on the anniversary of the death of Harry Chafin. Nonetheless, Phil, what I want to say to you, Mero, I don't know if that Harry Chafin sang that song. Do you know, do you know the song? I get it. Do you get know, it yeah. See, I'm a clunky segue, but I'm delighted with it, lads. That's a little bit of trivia for you. Just want to pop it in there. I think the problem that, that, that we have now, though, with this McGregor phenomenon and this McGregor world that we're all in, and and you're a million percent right, Phil. I, I've said this to Mero countless times, particularly when we were dealing with the, the stuff that happened in Ballybrack where we're from and the responses that I was getting and the abuse that I was getting. And I said to Mero, the only tactic they have is fear and intimidation. They want to cause you to feel intimidated. And we've seen that through McGregor and him acting in violent ways by punching that man in the pub, by smashing that fella's phone, all those things, by smashing up a bus and whatnot. The the thing now is as somebody and I, I mean I've like I've fallen off being a big MMA fan. I'm now very much a fair weather fan. And it's largely down to the personalities in the sport. I'm just struggling to to balance my ecosystem with theirs kind of thing. But me too, said, that's exactly same with me. You, yeah. you said it perfectly there when you said he went from being Ireland's greatest ambassador to Ireland's greatest embarrassment. And for me, as somebody who spent my hard-earned money to go to Las Vegas to watch him fight, I now look at that and I cringe and I say to myself, Jesus, why? Like, Now, it, it was a different time. He, was, he didn't have the same baggage he has now and all that kind of thing. But hindsight being 2020, you kind of wish that, you know, things had played out differently at this stage. You know, it's part of me, you know, that Ireland's greatest embarrassment 
as a U2 fan, that relieves me because that was Bono up until six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I mean? And it still is Bono. <laughs> swings and roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts. But like, <laughs> I don't know, I'm loath to turn this into a Conor McGregor conversation. I don't want to to give the name as much airtime. But what I would say is that if you're if you're look if you're looking up if you want to look up to uh, MMA stars, just look up to Chris Fields or or Tom King and those type of people because they are the shining Ashton light Daly. Irish MMA. Ashton Daly, Ashton Daly, absolutely, Daly. Jesus, yeah, you know? of course. Um, like he's now like, an educator, he's a teacher. So if you look up to these people who are on the right side of history, um, yeah. you know, but, but you, a team you, Dan, you, they're very few and far between in that sport. That's very true. But just go, to go back to what Dan is saying, there's two things there, Dan. One is don't be too hard on yourself because none of us had a crystal ball and knew how this was going to turn out. But I also think that, you know, I had this conversation with Connor, Dave Fogarty, you know, uh, the yeah, photographer yeah. who takes all his pictures. Dave was there as well. And when we were done with the interview, you know, and it was kind of embarrassing in a way because I was doing the interview for Reuters and I brought a camera because we had no headshots, like just a straightforward headshot of Conor McGregor to put out with an interview. And they didn't cover much MMA. So they actually had, you know, the world's biggest news agency had very little Conor McGregor pictures. And I needed to take a picture of Connor just to go with the interview, right? And I said, to, like, when the interview's over, I said to Connor, oh, I need to take a picture. And he goes, oh, yeah, come on over here. And he puts his arm around me. Dave, Dave, take a picture of us and send it to him. And I go, oh, Jesus, that's not what I meant. Like, you know? Now, it was a lovely thing for him to do because that's what he thought I wanted. But it was exactly the opposite. And those pictures, I will never be able to put them out anywhere. They'll never see the light of day, you know? But in the course of that, when I was sort of packing my stuff up, you know, put my notebook away and that kind of thing, I said to Connor because at that stage he'd fought Floyd Mayweather and we'd only talked about money for the half an hour that we were there, right? $140 million he reckons he made off that fight. And I sp we spoke about that. I said, Connor, the only thing we've talked about is money. I said, you know what you need? Sort of half joking, you know? I said, what's that? I said, you need a middle-aged Scandinavian woman who doesn't give a fuck who you are to look after your business affairs. So she's not going to give a bollocks if you're, you just fucking tore up on time, so that's what she'll tell you. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, if you have any of them, send them on to me. But it's, to a certain extent, when he said to me that there's no handbook for fame, this is mm. why I have sympathy, no, but definitely empathy, right? Because here was a young man who came off the dole and in the space of his year, his, his life has turned upside down, right? And I don't think that his managers, that his agents, that the people around him gave him a fair shake. Because like, literally what I said to him about the Scandinavian woman is that nobody ever said no to you. You know, that's the big problem that you have is nobody ever saying no. And I do think that so many of these things are counterintuitive, lads. That, you know, what we want is very seldom what's best for us, right? Yeah. I would love to do nothing to just sit here and read fucking books all day and play the PlayStation in the evening and have a can of alcohol-free Guinness to go to bed, right? Not going to make me any money. And I'm not, you know, my health is not going to be the best after. So I have to go and do other things besides. And even, you know, I also would love to do 40 hours of jiu-jitsu every week and get a black belt in three weeks, that kind of thing. That also wouldn't be good for me because I'm a very old man, right? But all of these things, we need people in our lives, like people who love us and don't fear us, right? Because if you love me, and you fear me, I've fucked up, right? And so many of our relationships, because we've struggled with so many of these things, right? I mentioned earlier on how hard it is to be loved. And if you're going to take anything away from that conversa this conversation this evening, lads, go and think about how many barriers you place towards being loved, how easy it is to act like an arsehole towards your mom or your dad or your spouse or your children, right? Because you just can't let them in because you're afraid that they'll find out who you really are on the inside and that they won't fucking love you anymore, right? We all 
live with that fear of not being good enough for those who love us, right? And the easy thing to do is to push them away, right? But if we don't do that, right, if we have the courage to be vulnerable with those people we love, it's a game changer altogether, right? And I really, really, I still struggle with that, right? I struggled with it yesterday. I was getting angry over things I had no right to get angry about because I wasn't prepared to give the few inches that I needed to get through that situation, right? So this is not something that you do. It's not the road to fucking Damascus where you fall off the donkey and everything's hunky-dory, right? This is work. This is emotional labor that usually women have to do in our lives because we're too fucking thick to do it, right? But this is the kind of thing that we have to do. If we all pull together and start are doing it we create that environment of solidarity right the thing i was talking about like you know i'm no better than anybody else when it comes to talking about the post-war social democracy of course everything wasn't perfect in sweden then but it was a lot better than what it is now and that comes from me being able to say you know what graham I'm having a tough time at the moment, man. I just need you to sit down with me for 10 minutes and sort it. Come on, we go and watch Shamrock Rovers. Let's go for something to eat. I need to lean on you now. And you saying, do you know what? I'm able for that. I can take you on now, right? Or maybe saying, no, look, it's Danny's turn. I can't be listening to you. I have my own shit to deal with, right? But in some way that we all get together, we pull together and support one another because that is community. That is solidarity. And frankly, there is nothing else. Anything else we're chasing, we're just shooting at the moon, lads. Love it, love it, um, and and it's it's mad as well. I, I meant to make the point earlier on when I was when I was going on about people saying enough is enough. I wrote, wrote something down. Um, oh Jesus, help just, us! Here we go. No, no just be serious. So, says second. the fellow who's quote Latin. We have to let him know if you're after pulling out Latin and exactly. cats in the cradle, we have to give him one. Latin. I'm bringing a it's culture to the masses, thing. lads. Just just, just mute yourself and shave your feet there. We'll we'll get the photo shoot done afterwards. Go on. It's only a brief thing because. Oh, I was sick of people saying enough is enough, you know, as if as if immigrants have caused everything. When like Magdalene Laundry's institutional abuse, legal rape and marriage, women forced to quit their jobs when they married, no access to contraception, no reproductive rights, corporal punishment in school, church child abuse. And like when you hear people say enough is enough, we get the good old days. They were the good old days. The last mother and baby home closed in 1997. No, so enough of this nonsense of the good old days but the good old days didn't exist but when Anne Lovett died in a field was it 1986 or 1983 I can't remember in Granard in County Longford she died giving birth to a child and she was too ashamed to tell her family or her boyfriend's family that she was pregnant and that was a watershed moment in Irish history and what happened was that women and girls started to write to the Gay Bourne show about their experiences right the dam broke and finally, these stories came out. And Gay Bourne, and I think it was a couple of actors and actresses who read the letters on behalf of those who sent them in, right? And in one of the letters, I don't know if this was ever broadcast, but I know that in one of the letters, a girl who had been raped on a farm by the farmer and who had given birth to the child told the story of how she had given birth to the child and the farmer drowned the child in a bucket. And her last memory of her child was the farmer walking away. That's just nowhere's paid, nothing like that, right? But the that, good old days. 
is the good old days, Graham. That yeah. is the Ireland <clears throat> that these people are trying to bring us back to. <clears throat> and that is not somewhere that I'm prepared to go for Irish men, for Irish women, for Irish anybody, or for anybody who enjoys the hospitality of our state. And let me tell you one more thing, lads, right? When I came over here to Sweden in 1999, right, everybody looks at me now as, ah, Jay's looking at him going to Las Vegas and he goes to Madison Square Garden, he goes to the Olympics, he does all these great things, right? I was one of the greatest failures Ireland had ever seen when it came down to, right? Literally everything I fucking touched turned is shite. I was like the reverse King Midas for a long time, right? And when I came to Sweden, I was only uh, this is like last week. Do you know who Anya O'Neill is? Anya is from Tala. She's a brilliant TV producer, presenter, actress, the whole lot, right? She's in LA uh, these Anya, days, isn't she? Uh, she no, she's actually back in Ireland, oh, right? But but last week she landed up here in Sweden, right? In the middle of nowhere. And she said to me, let's meet up. And I thought, that's deadly. We meet up in Stockholm. She said, no, no, I'm just north of Uppsala. And Uppsala is a town which is about 70 kilometers north of Stockholm, right? And I said, right, let's go. And uh, she'd kill me for telling this story, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Um, so I went. To, I drove out to Uppsala last Friday evening and uh, because this is one of those things I had to do because we've known each other for maybe 10 years, but we've never met in person. And we had dinner out in Uppsala and that kind of thing. And she was saying, right, uh, let's go. We were going to go and have a cup of coffee and a cinnamon bun and this kind of thing. It's a real sort of Swedish thing to do, especially at this time of the year, you know. And we're walking around and we're trying to find a cafe that's open, but cafes don't open late at night here. And the next thing we're walking by a pub called O'Connor's Pub, right? And O'Connor's Pub is somewhere that's well known to me because when I moved over here in 1999, the way I made money was by playing in the pubs, right? And one of the first ones I played in was O'Connor's in Uppsala. And that was the first night in my life in July of 1999 that I suffered from stage fright. And that essentially was the beginning of a nervous breakdown for me that lasted six months, right? And it was like, so she says, right, let's go in. And I told her this story. I said, and she said, how do you feel going in? I said, no problem. You know, I'm grand now. I have a roof over my head. I have a beautiful wife and two magnificent children. There's fucking nothing wrong with me. It was traumatic at the time to go through this and to realize that that's it. Music is done for you. Like I literally couldn't get the word, the, the notes. I couldn't get the words out when I was singing at all. It was a fucking disaster. I was ashamed to myself still. Like, you know, we went in and we sat down and we did that. But when I went home then, I kept playing away for months until that Christmas. And then I stopped playing. And I went home to my wife on Christmas Eve and I said, that's it, I can't do this anymore. I just have to find something else to do. I am fucking done, right? Didn't speak the language. Spoke a little bit, like a tiny little bit. I was going, how the fuck do I reinvent myself? Or do I just have to go back to Dublin with my tail between my legs? I said, no, I'll stay here, you know? And the people who helped me, lads, weren't blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swedish people who offered me a place in university and all that kind of thing. It was a Syrian family with a pizzeria who had been run out of their home village because they were Orthodox Christians, right? And they were just run out of there. And they had come to Sweden. The father, everybody in the whole village where I worked called him Papa, right? He was everybody's father. of it. He gave me a job for six euro an hour, right? Pulling points and baking pizzas and doing absolutely everything. I was the only white pizza baker in all of Sweden at the time, right? They were the people, <laughs> and I worked with them for maybe two, two years, maybe two and a half years. And like the, the two brothers, Kerem and Elias, are still to this day. If I need anything this second, I'll pick up that phone, and in fifteen minutes they'll be outside my door. These lads came to my wedding. They bought everybody drinks. They danced the night away. They did absolutely everything for me, and I maybe haven't seen them for a year. But it's the same thing. If they to call me now, I'll be out that door. I'll, I'll leave Danny there shaving his own feet, and we'll get to the photos later, right? Because this Syrian family helped me in my hour of need, right? And for me, it like you know, I'm so proud of the harp on my passport but it's not who I am. And that does not dictate what I am prepared to do for you. Would I do absolutely anything for any Irish person in Sweden? Of course I would. But I would like to think that I would do anything for any person in need that were to cross my path, right? I, I'm saying we're no better nor no worse than anybody else. All the things we share, from a love of Shamrock Rovers to 
a dubious love of you too to whatever else it is we have between us. They are just those things that we already share, things that we know about one another because we've all been through them, right? Other people have been through different things that makes them no better nor no worse than you or me. Where they go to worship on a Friday or a Saturday or Sunday, that makes them no better nor no worse either. At the end of the day, again, to go back to what we've always said in this podcast, all we have is each other, right? And we can fight that notion as long as we like. It ain't going anywhere. Absolutely. Phil, Absolutely. I just want to ask you before we let you go. Um, in 20 years time, how will we look back at the genocide of the Palestinian people? I think it's going to be one of the great stains on humanity, Graham, because we have created a case or a class of people who don't matter. And if you can do that with one class of people, you can do that with anyone. And it's it's so classically colonialist in its own way, you know, where you rob them entirely of their humanity. You know, you just go, OK, Usher, they're all Hamas supporters or, you know, today's child is tomorrow's terrorist and that kind of thing. I have now I say this as somebody who's part of a working group at the Auschwitz Museum, right? It's a place I've been to visit. It's a place I've written about many times. It's a place I've done a very, very long podcast about how we preserve the memory of the Holocaust now that the last survivors, there's very, very few of them left. How do we keep that alive? Because what happened there was the greatest stain on humanity, right? But to balance those two things, uh, and to, to has, try to have a discussion around Israel's right to exist and the right of Jewish people to live their lives exactly as I'm saying, like anybody else, but not to use that as a license to impinge on the freedom of others to, to live their lives the way they see fit, right? Of course, we we say it's a very complex situation and all those other things we pay lip service to, but it's also very, very simple. And the great Jewish thinkers, the great Jewish writers, the great Jewish people that, that I look up to and that have educated me on this front would all say the same thing. And it's the thing that Danny comes back to all the time. There is no them and us. There is only us. And any attempt, uh, th this comes as no surprise to me, no more than the rise of the far right comes as a surprise to me, right? Um, Netanyahu was a part of the same ecosystem that gave us Trump, that gave us Putin, that gave us uh, Alternative for Deutschland, that gave us the Sweden Democrats and Flemskis Partiet and uh, all these other parties, far-right parties, Marine Le Pen, they're all part of the same ecosystem and they all have the same goal, which is ethno-states, right? Israel, to me, um, it, it's a state that absolutely has a right to exist now, right? But the premise for that cannot be at the expense of anybody else, of their rights and freedoms. It cannot be a situation whereby just because of your name or just because of your religion that you're treated differently. That's what we've been trying to eradicate since the Second World War in Europe, in the Western world in general. And we need to go back to that way of thinking. There is absolutely no condoning for a single second of what Hamas did, right? There is not a single inch, not a millimetre would I give to anti-Semitism, right? Not a single millimetre. Anybody conflating the Jewish people or Jewish people, Jewish individuals with the Israeli state, I have no truck with any of that whatsoever. But the Israeli government as currently constituted cannot be allowed to continue doing these things. And again, if we talk about moral cowardice, right? We li we're living through things now that we thought that we would never see. And we have to ask ourselves what we are doing, right? I'm trying to keep a cool head in this situation, right? Because I know that I have a platform and I know that people are listening. I have spoken to people while in Auschwitz about the whole idea of uh, the boycotts and sanctions and all these other things. And they are horrified by it because they see it as an attack on them as Jewish individuals, not even as, as the Jewish people or as, as, well, as them as Jewish individuals, right? Because they see that. That's exactly how they see that, right? 
But again, what I'm trying to preach to them, what I'm trying to say to them is the same thing that I've been saying to you for the last hour and a half, right? I'm trying to say to them that I'm saying all these things with love in my heart. When I look into my heart, there isn't an ounce, there isn't an ounce of aggression or anger or anything else towards Jewish people or towards any Jewish individual. But towards the Israeli state, there is certainly an anger there for what they're doing at the moment. And we need as an international community to come together and not in any aggressive way. We need to guarantee their security, but we cannot do it at the expense of other people. And I think that we really need to start mobilising there because tipping points always come in these situations, right? And if we go back to what happened in the in the Rwanda genocide, it's, isn't it just ironic that the British government wants to deport people to a place where it had a genocide in the 1990s, right? That was all whipped up, mostly on local radio then because the internet didn't exist. And it's so easy, like the riot, as I mentioned earlier on, you need very, very few sparks to cause an inferno. And I'm very, very afraid that what is happening at the moment is going to get out of control. And when it does, like the riot, then it's just going to, it's just going to run its course, right? And when that happens, I, like what kills me every day, lads, and I was speaking privately to a Jewish person about this, and this Jewish person saw some of the comments that I was making as an attack on them, on their faith, on their family, the fact that I didn't care about their children. And I had to gently point out to them, it's not that I don't care about your children, it's that I care about your children and my children and Palestinian children. I see no difference yeah. between any of those yeah. children. I so see no difference between everybody's right to security, to safety, to be loved, to self-actualize and to be the best people that we can be. Because if we can't all strive for that together, then we're going to end up in a situation like we are at the moment. And it's so sorrowful, be that whether the streets of Dublin are burning or whether the streets of Gaza are burning. Absolutely. It's funny because I've seen, I've seen people online with uh, have a, an, an anti-immigrant sentiment in Ireland, but they've also shared uh, Palestine flags and free Palestine. I don't know how that works, but uh, about 10 years ago, I said to Danny that we'd be lucky if there's Palestine, Palestinian territories left in about 20 to 30 years' time, and I believe that's that's still to be the case. I don't think and in 20 years' time, I'd, we'd be looking at a very depleted Palestinian territories. Ironically, Graham, my my sort of route into the far right was exactly what you're saying, and it was it was actually through Jewish extremists, would you believe, or sorry, Zionist extremists. I used the wrong terminology there. Zionist extremists who started to do this thing. This is the first time that I noticed how coordinated the logic and the arguments could be in terms of calling the territory Judea and Samaria, for instance, and just basically saying that you know you'll often hear, oh, the Palestinian people don't exist. You're like, right, we're pointing to Palestine. It's the same thing with the Kurds. You know, ask Monadi, ask any Kurd. They go, oh, you know, how could be a Kurd? You don't even have a country. What's a Kurd, you know? And these are the arguments that are made. And essentially what you're doing is you're removing the right of the Palestinian people to exist. And if we flip that on its head and say, well, Israel didn't exist before 94. And of course, you would go back historically. That kind of, but the same efforts are made to delegitimize the existence of Jewish people, of Muslim people, of trans people, of gay people. You'll hear it said about gay people. Oh, that's a lifestyle choice was the big one in the 80s and the 90s, you know. So all of these yeah, arguments, yeah. There, there is nothing new under the sun here. Uh, all there is is fear and anger and all the changes is the target, right? The tactics are all the same. The arguments are all the same. The people behind it are, for the most part, all the same as well. And the sooner we realise that and how redundant it is, the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Phil, as always, that that was like an hour and a half to flew boy, um, was it? and thankfully we, uh, me and Mero said about four words, which is always <laughs> yeah. always the best. Phil, it's like it's like having a Joe night Brody off. taught on. me everything he knows. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, can you tell our listeners where they can listen to us? 
Uh, yeah, they can listen to you on every podcast prob- uh, problem uh, pro- uh, platform that is out there. Why WTS pod? Lads, for the love of Jesus, do not search for what's the story because you'll spend your time like me, an old grey-haired doddery man on a Saturday morning going, why can't I find Danny Amaro, right? It is WTS pod, right? Uh, if this has been your gateway drug, follow it up with a little bit of Paul Howard, a little bit of Gary Mackle, the most underrated man on the entire island of Ireland, right? The 300th episode was <laughs> absolutely brilliant the chat you had with breath that was absolutely brilliant as well you've had many other fine guests on here and the odd guest appearance for me you will find it there you will also find at merrigan mania mania on twitter and at dan joe murray on twitter you will also find uh only dans.com forward slash dan joe murray <laughs> forward, forward slash foot fetish forward slash cash in now <laughs> and where can people follow you they don't want to be following me it's just the same bollocks every day but you can find at well, Phil no, on twitter your- yes so the great thing that's happening at the moment is I'm still doing the Global Gale podcast and it's grown and grown and grown huge audience in Australia because thankfully we've exported all our people there and they can listen when I put it out early in the morning uh, so you'll find the Global Gale podcast you'll find the Irish immigrants in Australia exactly send them all home we're done with them Australia is full is my next hashtag right <laughs> Uh, so you'll find that then you'll find the Irish in Sweden podcast which sometimes it actually turns up a lot of guests that would be of interest to people who are generally interested in Irish people abroad as well you have the Premier Seeds Swedes podcast and the whole feed is called Our Man in Stockholm as the inestimable Dan Joe Murray said at the very beginning Our Man in Stockholm you'll find everything I do there and at Philip O'Connor on Twitter until probably Christmas and then at Philip Ablana on Instagram after that and once a month you'll find me on this podcast talking bollocks love it Absolutely, fucking love it. And sorry, I must thank you as well, Phil, because you kept me company on a nine-hour flight to Orlando recently uh, with the Our Man in Stockholm podcast catalog, and I listened to about five episodes back to back and fucking loved it. Got me through a flight when I was just, you know, you're on a plane and you're uncomfortable and you're tetchy and you're like, I just need to zone out of being on a fucking airplane. You played a big part in that, so I want to thank you personally for that. Mer- Mero, I'm sorry, but this year, Danny is getting both of the selection boxes. You can fuck off. You've never said that in my life to me. Uh, Thank you so much, yes. Dan. That means a lot. Pleasure, as always, Philip. Mero, until next time, my friend. Clear eyes. Full hearts. And it was too sweet. Thank you.